And uh, those will be up here, and we're going to read them all together, okay? This is the kind of text you can memorize in about two times over. Very easy to memorize, totally impossible to obey, all right? But we're going to read it together. Ready? Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know, when you come to commands in the Bible, they're all difficult, and we need to rely on the Holy Spirit to obey them properly. But then there are commands that aren't just difficult, they're impossible, Absolutely impossible. Here's one, Matthew 5, 48. Any of you done this? Therefore, you are to be perfect, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. In all recorded history, there's only been one person who has obeyed that command perfectly, and that's the Lord Jesus. Uh, The rest of us, it's just out there in the stratosphere. Or the two great commandments, to love God with all your being and to love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. No one can say, yep, check those off my list. I got them. I do that all the time. Uh, It's just impossible. And our text gives us these three impossible commands. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing in everything. Give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You know, if Paul had only said, uh, rejoice a lot and uh, pray, pray often and try to be thankful, I could say, yeah, I think I can give that a shot. I'll, I'll try for those things. But the way he says it, I... No one can honestly say, I rejoice always, and I pray without ceasing, and in everything I give thanks. And you can't resolve and say, well, okay, I'll start doing that this week. Uh, It ain't going to work. You can't look back on the end of your week and say, yep, there wasn't a single moment that I just wasn't rejoicing and wasn't praying and wasn't giving thanks. That happened Uh, 24-7 this week. So, the question becomes then, what do you do with these impossible commands? Uh, John Stott, rather curiously, in his uh, book on 1 Thessalonians, argues that these commands are not directed to us as individuals, but to the church corporate when we come together to worship. And his rationale, he says, is that joy and happiness are not at our command to turn on and off like a tap. Well, as much as I respect John Stott, it seems to me there are many biblical commands to rejoice and to give thanks in the Lord as well as to pray. Mark, and, and while our corporate worship should definitely be marked by rejoicing and by prayer and by thanksgiving, if we haven't been doing that all week, then it's going to fall flat when we come together. You can't just crank it on for Sunday. So I would argue that these commands are given to us individually, and then they will spill over in our corporate gatherings if we are seeking 
to obey them. It's interesting to me as I read and study this passage that Paul does not offer any explanation or help here on what these commands mean or how do I go about obeying them. He just kind of staccato fashion rattles them off and moves on. Um, There are other scriptures, however, that help us understand more what does this mean and how can we begin to obey them? How can we develop the attitudes and habits that will move us toward the mark, even though in this life we're never going to bat a thousand on these? We should be growing in them, aiming at them, but until the Lord comes, we're not going to be... um, hitting the mark every time. But Paul's idea here is very easily stated, just not so easy to obey, and that is that God commands us to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. So I'm going to work through each of them and try to explain what the command means and then give some pointers on how we can grow in obeying them. Uh, Notice also at the end of the verse, Paul says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And all, all commentators that I read agree that the this refers to all three commands, not just to give thanks. Um, you know, sometimes you have trouble figuring out what is God's will? Should I marry so-and-so or take this job or move to this city and all that? And that's difficult. But here, there's no question. This is God's will for every Christian um, in Christ Jesus. And that is that we would rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. Now, that last phrase in verse 18, I think, gives us a starting clue and maybe an overarching clue on how do we obey these. That is, we obey them in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. In other words, if you're not in union with Christ, if his Holy Spirit is not indwelling you, you don't have a chance here of obeying these commands. We are placed into Christ the moment we believe the good news, and that is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, that he was raised from the dead, and that all who believe in him receive eternal life, forgiveness of sins as a free gift from God. At that moment, we are in Christ. Paul puts it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.30. He says, but by his doing... You are in Christ Jesus. And remember, he's writing to the Corinthians. They were a rather motley crew, weren't they? But he says, by Christ's doing, God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So, to begin with, to obey these impossible commands... We have to begin with the gospel. You have to have experienced the new birth through faith in Jesus Christ and know that you're in Christ, that he dwells in you. And then as we learn to abide in Christ and to trust him to work through us, progressively we become conformed to his image. And Jesus is the one 
who is always uh, rejoicing. He was always praying. He was always thankful. So the key, again, is to be in Christ. Now, with that, let's look at the first one that God commands us then to rejoice always. And the first question, well, what does that mean? Uh, Does it mean you always go around with a smile on your face and a bouncy kind of tigger bounce in your step and you're just upbeat about everything? You know, you're the quintessential optimist where um, you're, you're never sad You're never depressed, you're never upset, you're never grieved. And does it mean that if you ever feel sadness or depression or being upset or grieved that you're sinning? Uh, Because that would be an important question to answer. I used to have a guy in my church in California, um, and he had boku problems in his life I knew about. And every time I would ask him, how are you doing? He'd say, just praising the Lord. You know, and it was like he didn't want to say or admit, you know, I'm really struggling with some things. Just really going through some hard stuff. That would have been unspiritual. I think he had bought into the heresy that is called the, the positive confession. And some in the charismatic movement teach that your words create reality. And so you never want to confess anything negative because you'll create that. And so you may be dying of cancer and you say, praise God, I'm, I'm healed, even though you're not. And, you know, maybe you're struggling and you're hurting inside. You don't want to admit that. You say, you know, hey, just praising the Lord. Well, that was who that brother was. Seemed to me he was denying reality. Here's the problem. If rejoicing always means always being upbeat and never feeling sadness, uh, then Jesus and Paul must have sinned. Because both of those men, at times, were sad and were struggling with issues, with hard things. Uh, You know what the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament is? Rejoice always. You know what the shortest verse in the English New Testament is? Jesus wept. Those are not contradictory. Uh, somehow you got to fit all those into your theology of rejoicing. And it says in Hebrews 5, 7, that as Jesus faced the cross, he prayed with loud crying and tears. He wasn't upbeat at that moment. Um, In 2 Corinthians 6.10, the Apostle Paul describes himself as always sorrowful, yet rejoicing. Always sorrowful, yet rejoicing. And in Romans 12.15, he says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. He doesn't say, uh, tell those who weep to buck up, you know. I mean, tell them to get their focus on the right way so that they're more upbeat. I mean, that's just depressing to be around weepy people. He doesn't say that. He says, weep with them. Weep with them. So rejoice always doesn't mean deny your feelings, put on a happy face, never feel sad. Um, 
It says in Hebrews 12.11 regarding the trials that God brings into our lives uh, as his children to train us. It says all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. And yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So how do we come to this then? Rejoice always. Um, first thing I think it's important, as always, to realize the context. Paul is writing to believers who are going through persecution. We've seen that. And uh, they were losing loved ones. We saw that. And he just has said in uh, verse 15, don't repay others evil for evil, but seek after what's good for one another and for all people. So uh, in the persecution, they were being mistreated. I'm going to surmise that Paul had taught them the words of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, where Matthew 5, 11, and 12, Jesus said, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Here's the command. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Or another text, James chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, says, Consider it all Joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Or in Romans chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul wrote, Not only this, but we exult in our trans, uh, tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance, and perseverance, proven character, and proven character, hope, and Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. Now, all those texts seem to me to be saying this. When you encounter difficult circumstances, and we all do, this command to, be, to rejoice has to be viewed primarily as a matter of obedience, not of feelings. You can't crank up the feelings, but you can direct your mind into the things of God, and rejoice. See, in a time of trial, you can either focus on your trials, and then pretty soon you're lapsing into self-pity, or you can, as Paul says in Colossians 3, 1 and following, you can set your mind on those things above where Christ is at the right hand of God and where you are hidden with Christ in God, and all the blessings that are ours because we're Christians, you can focus there and uh, rejoice. Paul commanded the Philippians in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And in case they're all saying, huh? He says again, I'll say rejoice. Uh, and I think that little phrase, in the Lord, is the key there. You can't rejoice in circumstances. And I'm not saying we totally disregard circumstances. Sometimes it's hard and circumstances are sad. But in the Lord, we can direct our thoughts to him and do all that we have in him and say, yes, this body is going to fail. Yes, this world is a mess. Even my world is struggling. 
but I am in the Lord and I will see the Lord and all will be forever joyful in the Lord and that can be our focus. So here's what I come down to rejoicing always means, that it's a conscious attitude of contentment, hope, and happiness that comes from deliberately focusing on Christ and all of the eternal treasures that we have uh, received freely from him. John Piper, in his book, When, When I Don't Desire God, has a subtitle to it, How to Fight for Joy. And that subtitle I like because sometimes it's a fight. And some of us, constitutionally, it's more of a fight than for others because there are some people who are just by personality naturally upbeat, buoyant, and, you know, uh, optimistic people. And then there are others who are more prone toward depression. But wherever we're at on the spectrum, we have to fight for joy in the Lord. It's one reason I love reading the Psalms. I read the Psalm every morning. And I would encourage you to read the Psalms often. But when you read the Psalms, they're so real. Often the psalmist begins the psalm struggling. You know, how long, O Lord? Or, Lord, my enemies are about to kill me. And, you know, they're just, they're struggling. And by the end of the psalm, they come out praising the Lord. And you say, well, what's the difference? The difference is, in the middle of the psalm, he begins grappling with who God is and setting his mind on the things above, on the Lord and the Lord's protection and the Lord's goodness. And by the end of the psalm, his circumstances haven't changed. His enemies are still trying to kill him, but his attitude has changed. For example, in Psalm 5, just one of many I could have picked, but David begins mentioning his groaning. And as you read the psalm, you find out why he's groaning, because his enemies are trying to kill him. And he describes them, he says their inward part is destruction, and their throats are an open grave. Paul quotes that in uh, Romans 3 when he talks about the depravity of all people. And then David meditates in the psalm on God's abundant loving kindness toward him. His abundant loving kindness And then here's how he concludes the psalm. Psalm 5, verses 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice or be glad. Uh, Let them ever sing for joy. And may you shelter them that those who know your name may exult in you. For it is you who blesses the righteous man, O Lord. You surround him with favor as with a shield. Now, Paul himself, of course, had displayed that same joy in the Lord when he was in Philippi. You remember, he was falsely accused. He was beaten without a trial, he and Silas. They were thrown in the stocks, which you can imagine how that'd make your back ache, which is already open from being beaten. And they're in the prison, and at midnight, they were singing uh, hymns of praise to God, and they were praying And uh, that's when God brought the earthquake. They didn't know he was going to do that. They just probably hurt too much to sleep. So let's pray. Let's sing. And that's 
what Paul experienced. And the letter that he writes to the Philippians is really his letter of joy. If you want to grow in joy, meditate on Philippians. Same thing with the apostles. You remember in Acts 5, the Sanhedrin flogged them after warning them not to preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And in Acts 5.41 it says, So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. So, as I understand it, to rejoice always means that in any and every situation, uh, we make this deliberate choice to focus on the Lord and on the unfathomable riches of Christ, as Paul describes it in Ephesians 3, that we have in him, and not on our circumstances. And especially, this joy shines the brightest in the darkness. Um, In Philippians, that letter of joy, Paul there says, if you don't grumble and you don't complain, you're going to stand out like a light in this dark world. And we all know that, because the world is given to grumbling, and the world is given to complaining. But Christians can say, you know, in the Lord, I have that contentment, that undergirding joy. Leon Morris describes the first century believers this way. He says, persecution was always threatening and often actual. The believers were usually in straitened circumstances and compelled to work hard for a living. Uh, Their lot can rarely have been other than hard, but if we fasten our attention on these things, we put our emphasis in the wrong place. They thought more of their Lord than of their difficulties, more of their spiritual riches in Christ than of their poverty on earth, more of their glorious future when their Lord should come again than of their unhappy past. So, Question then, the second question is, how can we develop a habit of rejoicing always? And remember again, this is a lifelong deal, so you won't be doing it next week if you're not now, but you can make progress. First of all, focus daily on the riches that God has freely given you in Christ. It's all through the Bible. Let me just pick an example. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And I don't have time to read those verses, but Paul begins by saying that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He goes on and says how God chose you in Him before the foundation of the world. He says, in love, He predestined you to adoption as His child. He goes on to say how he freely bestowed his grace on you in Christ. He says in him you have redemption and the forgiveness of all your sins lavished upon you by his grace. He goes on to say that God has made known to you the mystery of his will, that he's given you an inheritance and he sealed you with the Holy Spirit of promise. Now in light of that, what's your problem? See, it kind of puts everything in perspective, doesn't it? To focus on all of that and then go, okay, Lord, now I've got this little problem. Um, But that's how the New Testament often does it. A second suggestion is walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. Because 
Joy is the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means daily you yield to the Holy Spirit and you trust in Him. You depend on the Spirit. And, um, you know, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. If you've ever noticed, I planted an apple tree in my backyard about five years ago. And this summer, I got three apples. (laughs) My neighbor's tree across the street had hundreds of apples. He gave us buckets full of the things. And and even then, the other day, I was out there talking to him. And I said, you still got apples up there. Uh, But mine had three. But it took time. And that's the point. It takes time to grow spiritual fruit. So don't get discouraged if it's not happening tomorrow. But the promise of Scripture is if you walk consistently in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit will be growing in your life. And then third suggestion is sing. If you're like me, you say, I can't sing. You know, I I can't carry a tune in a bucket. Um, But I found if you're feeling down, Get out a hymn book, or if you don't know the old hymns, you can find them online, or you can put on some music um, on your device, whatever, with your little gizmos in your ear, and uh, sing along. Sing along. And uh, that's just one way you can implement the first strategy. That is, you focus on your riches in Christ, because a lot of the great hymns and songs talk about all that we are and all that we have in Christ. And uh, I, I haven't verified this. I wish somebody would go to the trouble of doing it. I have heard that the most frequent command in the Bible is sing. I don't know if that's true. I just read a book this week said the most frequent one is fear not. But uh, maybe you can do that as a research project and see which is the most frequent. But sing is a frequent command And it's not by accident that the longest book in the Bible is a songbook. And when you read the Psalms, remember, these were to be sung. And singing has a way of just putting our focus on the things above. So, second command. God commands us to pray without ceasing. And first of all, what does this command mean? Does it mean... You have to be praying every waking moment. And I've heard people say, oh, this means you have to be in the spirit of prayer 24-7. Well, I don't pray while I'm asleep. And uh, there are a lot of other things on my mind during the day. I don't see Paul or Jesus praying in that way. Um, I think it's important to understand the word without ceasing in Greek was used in extra-biblical Greek of a hacking cough. Somebody who has a hacking cough isn't coughing in all the time. They're coughing often and persistently. They keep coming back to it. They quit coughing. A few minutes later, they're hacking again. Uh, That's the idea. The word was also used of repeated military assaults where an army would assault a city Maybe the city would rain them down arrows on them and they're driven back. They regroup and they assault it again and again until finally they obtain their objective. And that's the idea with prayer that we should pray over and over and over again 
until we win the victory. So I think our prayers then, when it says pray without ceasing, it means our prayers should be frequent and they should be persistent. Jesus told a couple of funny parables, one about a friend who comes to his friend at midnight and starts banging on his door saying, I've had unexpected guests, loan me some bread. And the guy in bed's going, go away, man. You know, I'm in bed with my kids and everything's quiet. And the guy keeps banging and he's thinking, he's going to wake up my kids. All right. And he gets up and gives him what he's asking for. And then Jesus told another funny parable about the the widow who goes to this judge who doesn't want to give her justice and and she keeps bugging him and bugging him until he thinks, good night, i got to get this woman out of my hair. And so he gives her what she's asking for. Now, Jesus isn't teaching that God is like that friend at midnight or the unjust judge, but he is teaching that's how we should pray. Frequently, often, until we obtain what we're asking for. Um, Now, rejoicing always, the first command, and praying without ceasing are related because it's through prayer that we lay hold of the riches that are ours in Christ, and the riches that are ours in Christ are the source of joy. So these two things are related. Um, In Romans uh, chapter 8, wonderful chapter again, we see how laying hold of our riches in Christ brings joy. Paul writes this, Romans 8, 31 and 32. If God is for us, and the implication there is clearly he is, in light of what Paul has just said, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? So, In prayer, we lay hold of those riches in Christ and make them ours. Now, hard question again. How can we then develop a habit of praying without ceasing? And again, let me urge or emphasize, it is a lifelong process. So if you're falling short, welcome to the club. Um, But we're all in this battle. Um, First of all, in the words of Paul Miller in his book, A Praying Life, Know that you can't do life on your own. That's essential. You can't do life on your own because we are dependent on Christ. Apart from me, he said, you can do nothing. So prayer is the language of trusting in the Lord in every situation. A second suggestion is send up short prayers whenever you can. Sometimes I think we think, sweet hour of prayer, good night, I don't have an hour. Well, do you have five seconds? You can pray, you can pray, you can pray uh, whenever. Sometimes, you know, at church, somebody will say, uh, hey, would you pray for me about this? And you say, yeah, yeah, I'll remember you in prayer. And then you forget, right? We've all done that. Well, stop right there. Just say, let's pray. Let's pray. I love it when I, after church I see People standing together in the sanctuary and they're praying together about a need. Uh, You can pray right there. I love the scene in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. And, uh uh-oh, he was sad in the king's presence. And that was a big deal. You weren't sad in the king's presence or he could remove your sad head from you. 
And so Nehemiah's a little worried, and the king says, why are you sad in my presence? And Nehemiah says, well, how can I be joyful when my city, Jerusalem, is desolate and destroyed? And so the king says, well, what would you request? And then here's how it reads, Nehemiah 2, 4 and 5. So I prayed to the God of heaven, I said to the king. Now, I don't think Nehemiah said, excuse me, king, I need to get away for a few minutes of prayer, and then I'll let you know. I think Nehemiah shot up a prayer and said, oh, God, help, here here goes. And he said to the king, and I love that. That's just how we can do in any and every situation. I don't think he prayed out loud. Uh, it was just, Lord, here goes, here goes. And the king granted him favor, and he went over and rebuilt the walls. Um, a third suggestion, just spend time every morning, make it a discipline to be in God's word and in prayer. I am not a morning person, and it is discipline for me to set my alarm at 6 a.m. and get up and spend, I try to spend at least 30 minutes reading the word and praying, sometimes longer, but um, you know, you got to be disciplined to do that. Start your day off with the Lord. And as I said, I, I begin with the Psalms because a lot of the Psalms are prayers and you can just pray those right back to God. Pray them right back to God and apply them to your family and to your friends and to your situation and, and so on. If it says, be glad in the Lord, Lord, help me to be glad in you. Lord, Help my family to be glad in you today and to rejoice in you and so on. Just read a little book last year. I think I had it out on the book table. Maybe it's still there by Don Whitney who wrote the Spiritual Disciplines book called Praying the Bible. And uh, he encourages you wherever in your, the Bible you're at and there's a prayer thing or something you can turn into prayer, just turn it back to the Lord in prayer. Um, just keep asking until you receive, seeking till you find, knocking till the door is opened unto you. And then a final suggestion is read some good books on prayer. And I mentioned already uh, Paul Miller's book, A Praying Life. That's a, somewhere near the top of my list of good books on prayer. Another one I like is a book by Bill Thrasher called A Journey to Victorious Praying. I've read that a couple of times. Um, Answers to Prayer by George Mueller. It's only about 100 pages. I think it's still in print. It shows you from his journal how he prayed and God answered, and it encourages you to be in prayer. Um, and then the longer book, George Mueller of Bristol by A.T. Pearson. Uh, excellent. Just to read about that great man of prayer. And then, this is an unlikely source, but in Calvin's Institutes, he has 70 pages on prayer. And it is rich. And I put together a few highlights from that and from George Mueller, and you can find them on our church website. If you go on and poke around and type in George Mueller or John Calvin, you should go to the resource on um, insights on prayer from George Mueller and John Calvin, and it's just a one-page bullet point thing of here are some points to remember when you pray. 
So, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. The last one to consider is that God commands us to give thanks in everything. What does that mean? Well, it means what it says. And that is, in every situation, we are to give thanks to our sovereign and good God and Savior. In Ephesians 5.20, Paul repeats it. He says, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Now again, that doesn't mean that we are commanded to be happy in every situation or go, oh, wonderful, let's just leave it as it is. Otherwise, why would we pray? For example, I was single until I was almost 27, and I wasn't happy about it. My mother gave me a book called Single and Satisfied, and I read that book, and I wasn't happy with that. I was not a satisfied single man. I wanted to be married, and finally, after much, much prayer, uh, fasting too, by the way, and prayer, on January 5th, 1974, I met Marla, and now I am thankful all the time that God answered my prayer. Maybe I wouldn't have been as thankful for a wife if I hadn't gone as long as I did seeking God for a wife. I don't know, but I am really, really thankful for her. Um, also, I don't think this command means we have to feel thankful before we give thanks. Uh, in hard trials, you're not going to feel thankful. Let's just be honest. I think that's where faith kicks in, and we have to say this, Lord, I believe that you are good, and I believe that you are sovereign, and I don't understand what you're doing in this situation, and Lord, it really, really, really hurts. But Lord, I'm going to trust you that you're going to work it together for good, because you promised that. And so, by faith, you rest on God's promise, and you can give thanks to him and submit to him, even though at the moment you're crying, you're hurting, it's difficult, but you rest in God. And so, like rejoicing always, I don't think this is a matter of feelings. I think it's a matter of choice to say, Lord, you command this, I will obey it. Now, how can we develop this habit in every situation of being thankful to God? First, and I think most importantly, deepen your understanding of God's sovereignty and of his goodness. And you have to hold those two together. God is sovereign and God is good. Uh, I just finished Genesis. I'm now reading about the plagues in Exodus in my morning time. But that story of Joseph is so beautiful. I just get choked up every time I read that story. You remember the situation. His brothers sold him into slavery. They would have killed him, but right at that moment, providentially, a band of slave or of uh, merchants comes along. And the brothers go, hey, why kill him? We won't make anything. We can make a buck by selling him. So they sell him into slavery in Egypt. He goes down to a foreign culture. He's a teenager probably. Foreign culture, doesn't speak their language. He's sold into slavery to Potiphar. You, you know how he resisted 
the advances of Potiphar's wife who tried to seduce him. He gets thrown into prison. Um, he obeys God and he, he gets more suffering. He begs the cupbearer who's getting released from prison, when you go to Pharaoh, remember me, would you please? Because I'm, I'm here unjustly. I shouldn't be here. Cupbearer says, sure thing, man, you got it. And he promptly forgets. And you know how long Joseph, after that, stayed in prison? Two full years. Two years not seeing the sun. Two years in a damp, dark dungeon with chains on. And then, finally, he interprets uh, Pharaoh's dream, and he's elevated to the second most position, powerful position in the country. Now, of course, he didn't know the end of the story at the beginning, and you have to understand that. He's just trusting God through all of that. How do we know that? Well, later, he is reconciled to his brothers, and he gets to see his aged father, Jacob, again before Jacob dies, which he had never thought he would see. But then Jacob passes away, and his brothers get a little nervous, and they're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, now revenge is going to happen. He's been nice to us because of dad, but dad's gone. Now we're going to get it. He's going to pay us back. And they go to him and beg him to be nice. And and it says, uh, Joseph wept. And he said, am I in the place of God? So he didn't take revenge, as verse 15 instructs us uh, not to do. And then he, he makes a statement that reveals his theological perspective that has carried him through all these years. Here's Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So Joseph saw God as good, and God was sovereign even over evil. And that's kind of the Romans 8.28 of the Old Testament. God is good. God is sovereign. Uh, Secondly, I think thankfulness will be our habit when trust in God is our habit. Because thankfulness and trust are really bound together. If you're trusting God, you're thankful. If you're not thankful, you're not trusting God. And I think we see that with the children of Israel in the Old Testament. God delivers them from slavery in Egypt after the ten miraculous plagues that he brought on on Egypt and spared Israel. He marches them down to the Red Sea. Pharaoh and his army are coming after them. God opens the sea. They march through safely. Uh, Pharaoh comes in after, and the sea closes over Pharaoh and his army, and Israel is delivered. Well, after all of that, you would think they would be trusting in God. And it says they went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. Isn't that just an opportunity to say, God... You just did all these miracles for us. How are you going to provide water? But instead, they grumble and they complain. And they didn't trust that the God who had powerfully saved them from so many things could provide water in the desert. But here's a general principle. If you're grumbling, you're not trusting. And if you're not trusting, you're not thankful. And so we got to put an axe to grumbling, and I'm speaking to myself here. 
But just developing this habit of trusting God, especially in trials. And then you can thank him for his great salvation. He's delivered us through the Red Sea, so to speak, in the Lord. And then we'll see him work. And we should see our problems as opportunities to see God work for his glory. Thirteen years after he was con- or before he was converted, John Wesley, and Wesley was a religious man. He just wasn't converted. And one night he had a conversation with a porter at his college, and it impressed Wesley. There's more to this Christian thing than I'm aware of. He found out that the porter had only one coat, that he had not eaten a meal that day because he was too poor. And yet this man's heart was full of gratitude to God. And Wesley said to him, you thank God when you have nothing to wear, nothing to eat, and no bed to lie upon? What else do you thank him for? I thank him, answered the porter, that he has given me my life and being and a heart to love him and a desire to serve him. So it's easy to remember, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. And even though we'll never obey those perfectly in this life, we should be making progress because this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Dear Father, you know how far short we all fall in these impossible commands, but we want to reflect Jesus to this hurting and lost world and we can't do it if we're forever grieving and sad and if we're not trusting you in prayer and if we're not thanking you even in trials and so I ask that you would help me and my brothers and sisters to grow in that and I pray Lord if any are here who do do not know the joy of having their sins forgiven and having eternal life and the hope of being with you forever, that you would open their eyes to see their desperate need and the full provision that awaits all who trust in Jesus and that they would put their trust in you even today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.